Shalom Aleichem, welcome to the Shmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Daniela Smoloff-Levy and Mark Kligman. Daniela is a musicologist who studies the history of efforts to democratize opera in America, including those aimed at Yiddish speakers in the early 20th century. She's currently a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Haifa as part of the Dybbuk project that seeks to map the forms, themes, practices, aesthetics, and broader influence of early 20th century shund, trash, Yiddish musical theater in America and Europe. She holds a doctorate in musicology from Stanford University, a master's degree in piano performance from New York University, and a bachelor's degree in comparative literature and music from Princeton University. Her work has been published widely, and Daniela has taught opera history at Panoma College and courses on music and class in American society, as well as the sociology of culture at the University of Southern California. Mark Kligman is an inaugural holder of the Mickey Katz Endowed Chair in Jewish Music and Professor of Ethnomusicology and Musicology at UCLA in the Herb Alpert School of Music. This is the first endowed chair in Jewish music in the United States. He served on the faculty of Hebrew University College, Jewish Institute of Religion, when he taught in the Debbie Friedman School of Sacred Music. He specializes in the liturgical traditions of Middle Eastern Jewish communities and various areas of popular Jewish music. He has published widely and was awarded a 2009 Jordan Schnitzer Book Award Notable Selection. Welcome to you both and so glad that you could join me to talk about your upcoming, well actually it aired last night, it began a program on Italian opera for the Yiddish speaking masses in the early 20th century America. So. To get us started, can you talk a little bit about the collaboration um, and a bit about your roles? Sure. So we um, at UCLA uh, are proud to have the first endowed center of Jewish music, the Lowell Milken Center of Music of, Jew of American Jewish Experience. And we have wonderful programs that are dedicated uh, towards research and performance and education and presentations on Jewish music. And the um, initiative here was to really aid and support a scholar who's doing cutting edge research in some area of American Jewish music. And in my conversations with Daniel Small of Levy, uh, we discussed what might work in a multi-part series. And in our current, uh, although far too long, um, uh, online environment, we decided to have five online lectures would really work and we just want to support the wonderful research that Danielle is doing and maybe she can tell more about what what uh, what the um, initiative is. Sure, uh, thanks so much for having us Lisa, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here and it's been a great opportunity to work with Mark and have these chances to share research on operating the Yiddish speakers and this project has kind of evolved gradually and expanded as sort of new materials arrive, keep arising and uh, new sources. And as I keep discovering that opera was much more prevalent among Yiddish speakers than I realized. And so when we were discussing this project, um, it made sense to do several parts because there were just so many interesting aspects to the topic. I have to say, I was really intrigued when I heard about the project and we were in touch. Um, to figure out or to ask you more pointedly, um, how Yiddish and a Yiddish speaking audience fits into this history in terms of the immigrant cultural scene. 
Sure, there's a really interesting paradox in this uh, cultural context, I guess you could say, because on the one hand, many, many of these immigrants, vast majority of them who came from Eastern Europe and Italy were of quite modest means and they came and lived uh, initially, many of them on the Lower East Side and you know, in similar areas of other major cities like Chicago and San Francisco, where they were doing sweatshop work and just really very low paid, uh, low paid work. But many of these people came from environments and cultures where opera was part of uh, sort of the broader cultural context. And some of them brought their interest in opera with them when they came to the United States and others absorbed it from the broader environment, which at the time in the early 20th century in America was actually filled with a lot of opportunities to see opera at, at popular prices, that's, that's what they were called at the time, as part of this broader progressive era um, ideology that quote unquote high culture, which opera had become uh, at that point, that that sort of thing should be available to the wider public. And so in, in this ferment of, of cultural expansion, Yiddish speaking Jews were uh, very much interested in participating in this. And they brought with them that interest in education along with, um, for many of them, a uh, heritage of uh, cultural connection to opera in Europe. Was it within most people's means to attend or was it, was it elitist? The big opera houses, the major ones, like the Metropolitan Opera and then from 1906 to 1910, the Manhattan Opera, those were very expensive. And that was a problem from the perspective of those people in cultural circles who felt that opera should be widely accessible. It is the case that many immigrants, both Italians and Yiddish speaking Jews and people from other cultures as well, could afford to sit in the very cheapest seats, which were way up high in the gallery at the Met. Some of those seats didn't even have any view of the stage. People would sometimes go to the standing room right behind the orchestra section, which is you know, crowded and can't see very well either. And the Met did have popular price nights as they called them on Saturdays, most Saturdays through the season where tickets were half price, but the cheapest seats were still 50 cents, which at the time would have been probably, you know, about, you know, 15, $16 or so. So, you know, not, not nothing, but affordable, but they weren't very good seats. And it was definitely the perspective at the time that opera in foreign languages at these big opera houses was very much for the elites. It was a place for them to sit in their big box seats and show off their riches and their status and where the elite sat in their in the opera house corresponded with the particular status hierarchy of the time. So people who really wanted to hear the opera, you know, ha had a tough time. There's a funny cartoon that I showed in the lecture last night from 1907 where the focus is on, on the elites who were talking and just causing, you know, just disrupting the whole operatic experience for everybody. You can see the people in the galleries in the upper levels and standing there cupping their hands around their ears or leaning over the banisters trying to hear the opera because they're the ones who actually care about the opera and are there to enjoy the music, but the elites, the stereotype, so the stereotype goes, are there just for, you know, for social purposes. So it was very expensive. If, if people wanted to sit in, you know, regular seats and have a decent experience, um, you know, people, people, working class people certainly couldn't afford that. So there were these other um, opportunities for them that people, various democratizers and, and uh, people in, um, in positions of you know, with cultural influence, uh, opportunities that they created to cater to this interest. And these performances, like the ones I, I've been talking about, I talked about last night and then I'll talk about it in subsequent lectures, were explicitly at popular prices. So the most expensive ticket was usually only $1 or $1.50. So the cheapest ticket at the Met was a dollar, the most expensive price, in these popular private performances 
um, or a dollar. And these the prices for the opera in these popular contexts was the same as for regular theater performances, which we know that working class people did afford, could afford and frequently attended. So you mentioned in something that I read, um, and I'm hoping you can provide a little bit of background, um, that Ivan Abramson and Josiah Zuro were described as empresarios who were among many zealous opera democratizers in the early 20th century America. Um, can you expand? Sure. In the early 1900s, there was really an explosion of these popular price um, endeavors. So opera in the United States had a history since the mid, you know, even the earlier part of the uh, 19th century as being popular entertainment in the sense of being, um, you know, consumed by people of all social classes, not just elites. And opera did not have an elite reputation at all. Um, and so there were many touring companies that came over from Europe, from England, from Italy, um, and there were tour troops that were purely American based and they traveled all around the country performing in large cities and in small places really all over um, at prices that ordinary people could afford. Increasingly as more Italian troops came over and American social elites were looking for ways to establish and show their status in American society, they turned to the European tradition of um, aristocratic people gathering in opera houses as part of their, their social milieu. So increasingly foreign language opera became uh, the domain of elites, became associated with them and ticket prices um, were expensive. And so they're sort of established, they evolved these two spheres of foreign language, grand opera, very lavish spectacle with the best stars. It was expensive, aimed at elites, certainly consumed by other people, you know, middle-class people who can't fill an opera house, just as elites, but still, you know, sort of an elite activity. But there was a whole other busy world of popular price opera in English translation. And that was going on, you know, into the 1870s, 80s, and 90s, and into the early 1900s as well with people like Henry Savage, uh, who were touring and doing you know, pretty high quality performances, as far as we can tell. But there was really um, a, a, a sort of a cultural flowering, you could say, in this progressive era period, where there was more and more of this popular price opera to presumably fulfill the demand that was um, that was arising in part through these waves of immigration that were happening in these uh, early 20th century years from Italy and from Eastern Europe, and just a general response to this progressive era climate of interest in quote unquote high culture, which opera had become. And so there's all these initiatives to make it accessible. And opera was a great, um, a great, uh, you know, manifestation of this kind of culture because it had this history of being popular and was integrated with popular culture already in ways that um, other kinds of culture were not. So um, people like Abramson and Zuro um, and Oscar Hammerstein also were among these you know, people who, who were taking advantage of this surge in interest to, to promote popular price opera and make it accessible to uh, as wide a range of people as possible. Mark, I'd be curious to ask you um, sort of how this, how this fits into your work and how surprised you are, or, or you know, how, how does this sort of speak to your interests, your work, and talking about a sort of broader subject? So our goal at the center at UCLA is to focus on American Jewish music. And American Jewish music is often misunderstood or understood in different ways. In some basic ways, people think of American Jewish music as 
while Jews were in Eastern Europe or in different places, they came to America, they continued that music, and then the American experience happened. It suddenly turned into pop or rock, or it somehow fell off a cliff because that music was no longer retaining certain Eastern European elements. And what we're really trying to show in the various type of musical context that we're working in, if it's art or heritage or pop, sacred, is that it's a far more nuanced process that's going on, that Jews are interacting and really grappling with tradition and innovation. And this is not just something that people are doing today or been doing in the last few decades, but this has been going, along, going on for as long as Jews have been in America. And we tend to think of musical phenomenon as being somewhat more recent. So this all leads us to the importance of what Daniela is trying to um, show in her work is that this was really going on at the turn of the century. It was really going on when um, Jews were just beginning their American experience and their American journey. And it truly expands our notion of what um, Jews and music is all about, because it's not just, a, I mean, it's very important for us to look at Yiddish theater and Yiddish songs and, 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 and other Jewish contexts, but in a context of this world of art music, or in this case, opera that's becoming more popularized, knowing that Jews were very actively involved in it at all levels, not just as creators and performers, but as the, as the producers, as the, as the impresarios. And this is really true of Jews in, as art collectors, as uh, really engaged uh, in America. And it really shows us how Jews are integrating their experiences, that they want to become American, that they want to feel comfortable in America, and new opportunities are really in front of them. And um, this, this history that Danielle is showing us at this time period provides for us the beginnings of things that we've been seeing going on for well over 100 years. Yet it sprang to mind for me, and maybe both want to comment on it, um, it seems somewhat obvious that this was part of assimilation process. Yeah, sure. I think it certainly was. But on the other hand, so much of this was uh, done in an explicitly Yiddish context as well. And it's interesting to watch somebody like Ivan Nimson, even though his, his particular company was only going on for two years, he started out catering very explicitly to Jews and Italians promoting all this stuff in his, in, you know, his Yiddish newspaper and, you know, advertising in the, in the wider Yiddish sphere, promoting Italian opera in the language of this minority group from the old country, and yet gradually integrating his enterprise into the American mainstream. He started out in these Lower East Side theaters, whereas the audiences were mostly Jews and Italians, immigrants. And then as his enterprise expanded, started moving farther uptown and started you know, attracting um, you know, more diverse audiences, including you know, native Anglo-Americans and people just from other, you know, the middle class as well. And I think when he went on tour brought in even you know, wider audiences. And uh, as I mentioned in the talk last night, when he performed in Washington, his company performed in Washington, DC, DC, President Roosevelt even came and sold out the houses because everybody heard, oh, the president's coming. 
Um, and in fact, the Abrams and Trump went to the White House um, and, and met with the president. So it's kind of interesting. His, his troop is sort of a in microcosm, you could say, of the trajectory of Yiddish speakers' engagement with opera. So many of these enterprises were aimed at them, trying to get them you know, uh, access to opera in their context, uh, advertising to them in Yiddish, in these, you know, in these Yiddish-speaking circles, but then integrating those endeavors into the wider cultural sphere and then sort of becoming part of the mainstream American opera world. I so, guess oh, a really go ahead, sorry, Mark. great question, Lisa, in terms of the assimilation, because I think it's one of those interesting polemics, because on one hand, we can say if Jews are gravitating towards art culture or popular culture in some form, that's, a, that's, that's the assimilation process at work. But I do think it's a real continuum because there's a level by which we could look at any context of you know, sacred um, music, art music, popular music, and we, we can see how there is this, this um, process by which the people want to be accepted, want to become well-known, but at the same time, there are many stories of how these are just constantly, constantly negotiated and, and people are drawing upon different things because we can see how opera has influenced music of the synagogue, how opera has influenced uh, vocal production and vocal training. So the, it's not just solely sort of one direction. It's this really interesting negotiation. It's, it's so interesting. We have um, an annual summer festival called Yidstock and it's four days of music and you know it's new new Yiddish music and Klezmer and I think what you're saying is so true it, it is a continuum um, and we constantly build on it and in terms of a diaspora Jews in all aspects of culture food etc draw on um, and build on and borrow from different places and um, different types of music so it's it's really it's a very fascinating topic, which leads me to say, um, this is a five-part series, and I'd love to know, I know you had, the first one is last night, which I believe, and you can um, share with listeners um, how they can watch it back, as it were, or listen back, um, and what's upcoming, because I think this is, yeah, it's a really fascinating window into an aspect of Jewish and Yiddish culture that we might otherwise not have been privy to. So tell me about the other other programs um, and again, how listeners can tap in and register. Sure. The lecture from last night is available on YouTube on the Lowell Milken uh, Center uh, site within YouTube. So those are all, in fact, all the lectures and all the series and programs that the center does are all available there on YouTube. And uh, links to registration are available on the, through the UCLA uh, Lowell Milken center website as well so people can just sign up it's free and then the zoom link will be sent to them so the next four lectures are on the second tuesday of every month so the next one will be in february and i'll be talking about oscar hammerstein who is kind of interesting parallel or comparison you could say to ivan abramson who uh, abramson brought you could say opera to the people he took italian opera and performed it in theaters on the lower east side where his audiences lived and worked Hammerstein, on the other hand, wants to bring the people to the opera. So he's built his Manhattan Opera House as a competitor. It became a competitor to the Met. Uh, and so his goal is to obviously bring as many people as possible. And among them were Yiddish-speaking Jews. And he advertised in the Yiddish papers and was 
frequently uh, covered in the Yiddish press. So his endeavor is an interesting combination of, sort of the highbrow elite opera spheres and the more popular circles as well. So that'll be the second lecture. And the third one will be on an uh, opera singer from Russia, a Russian Jew named Mikhail Medvedev. That wasn't his original name, but that's the one he used in performance, who was had a real uh, career in opera in Russia, uh, the Russian Empire at the time in the late uh, 18, late 19, sorry, late 1800s, uh, early 19th, late 19th century. And he came over to New York and towards the end of his career and was involved in the Yiddish theater. So his story is an interesting example of how opera was integrated into the world of Yiddish theater because he performed not only uh, opera uh, in these Lower East Side theaters, but also performed in some Yiddish theater performances, some dramatic uh, performances. So he was involving, involved in both spheres. And it's interesting to think about also the transatlantic connections between the op opera world in Europe and the opera world and the theater world uh, in Yiddish in America. Uh, and then the fourth lecture will be on Josiah Zuro, who was uh, another Jewish impresario who uh, worked on the Lower East Side and um, began his career doing these productions of Italian opera aimed at Yiddish speakers advertising Yiddish papers in these Yiddish circles and sort of integrating a lot of aspects of Jewish life at the time um, in promoting his productions. And he actually had a, an interesting career later on. Um, so he, he moved outside of these Yiddish speaking circles and became an educator and promoter of uh, music in, in, a, in a wider sphere. So he's kind of an interesting example of a slightly later version of the kind of work that Abramson was doing, but this is already 1911, 1915 or so. And the last lecture will be a broader summation of this whole cultural picture, trying to get a sense of, you know, what this interest in opera means in uh, our understanding of Yiddish speakers' culture, their, their involvement in, on the one hand, mainstream American culture, although within this kind of European segment of it, you could say, and within their own Yiddish speaking circles and ties to, to traditional you know, old world um, ways of life. And so the way they negotiated that and thinking about how this Yiddish speaking um, cultural scene um, in the opera world is um, involved and connected to the more mainstream uh, American opera scene. And uh, again, so just quickly, if um, listeners want to uh, look for this, it's through UCLA and Milken, M-I-L-K-E-N, correct? Actually, the easiest thing to do is just to type in UCLA Jewish Music, and they'll come up immediately with the link to the center. And when they go to the center site, you scroll down and you'll see the event and you can register for the next event on February 8th. And if you go to YouTube and just put in UCLA Lowell Milken Center, you'll be able to see um, all of our lectures and, and Daniela's recent lecture will, will pop up. Um, and I just encourage people to look at the events page of our center because we have lots of events. Many of them deal with Yiddish culture. We have workshops uh, for musicians, uh, various presentations and talks as well. And uh, thank you so much for uh, letting us join you. Um, thank you both for the work that you're doing. It's fascinating. And I know um, personally, next Tuesday night, what I'll be listening to. So thank you again for joining us. And um, we look forward to your next project. Take Thanks care. for having us, Lisa. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Good to be with you.
You have been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To learn more about this podcast and to subscribe, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Elizabeth Carteropoli. Until next time, be well and be healthy.